0: Hello, friends. We're so glad you're joining us today. Today we're going to talk about help in times of trouble. We don't have to look far around us to see many people in trouble. Trouble is a word with a wide range. Trouble can be dripping salsa or cheese sauce on your white blouse while you're crunching a, mo- a nacho. Or trouble can be having a bad day. Or it can be, on the other end of the range, it can be deep trouble, where there seem to be no answers. Back in the early 70s, uh, a children's book was written called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Did you ever have one of those? Well, Alexander had one And from the time he woke up, he noticed that the bubble gum that was in his mouth when he went to sleep was now stuck in his hair. And when he started to get out of the bed, he tripped over his skateboard, and then he dropped his favorite sweater in the bathroom sink while the water was running. At the shoe store, he wanted blue sneakers with red stripes and they were sold out. So his mother just bought him plain white ones. His mother forgot to put dessert in his school lunch and all of his friends with whom he was sitting at the table, they all had dessert, but not Alexander. After school, his mother took him and his brothers to the dentist and he was the only one with a cavity. But still the problems had only begun. The book describes lots more things that happened during the day, but they had lima beans for supper. Alexander said, this is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And he concluded that the way to fix all of that was to move to Australia. That they surely didn't have things like that in in Australia. Things would surely be better there. There's an interesting story in scripture about a man that had, for me, it would have been a bad day. I've been doing a little bit of reading about David's mighty men. You ever read about that? It's very interesting and there were 30 of them and they are listed in 2 Samuel 23, down toward the end of the chapter. And there are a lot of little just kind of clippets in there that just give us little things that some of these mighty men did. And this guy's name was Benaiah, Benaiah. And he somehow wound up in this very difficult situation. Scripture doesn't give us much information. There's very little detail there. But there was snow on the ground. Now, we know what we do when there's snow on the ground. Everything shuts down, and we get some milk and bread, and we stay in the house because we live in the south. And that's what we do. But this guy was out. He was out and about on a snowy day. Some say maybe he was going to battle, but whether by choice or by accident, he wound up in a pit. Did he go in on purpose? Did he fall in? I don't know. Scripture doesn't say. Either way you look at it, there was a lion in there. Scripture tells us in 1 Samuel 23 and 1 Chronicles 11 that Beniah slew a lion in a pit on a snowy day. That would be a bad day for me. If I were going to chase a lion, I would want to be in the wide open fields where there were lots of trees and I could duck behind one. But Beniah killed this lion. He met a ferocious adversary in a very difficult place, and he killed him. He met the worst enemy in the worst place under the worst circumstances. It was treacherous. I call that trouble. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In other words, he's after you, and his plan is to eat you for lunch. And Peter calls him like a lion. Well, every one of us has a lion in our lives. Something troubling us, something we fear, something threatening us. It could be a dreaded disease. It could be a crushing disappointment. It could be deep grief. It could be financial hardship. There are just some things, some of those things, you just can't get away from it. You can't hide from it. You can't run from it. It's there. So what do you do? Do you quit? Do you give up? Well, we've all had times of trouble. And the question for me today is what do you do? What do you do when you're in time of trouble? How do we defeat the lions in our lives? How do we deal with the trouble that is in life? Well, if you can, would you please take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 46, Psalm 46. This is said to have been Martin Luther's favorite Psalm. He knew trouble. And this was a psalm for him. But we know this, that God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He tells us he loves us, and he demonstrates that love. God wants the world to know that he loves you. One of Satan's goals is to cause us to doubt God's love. Satan doesn't want us to believe that God loves us the way he loves us. And when I doubt God's love, then at the same time, I'm questioning his goodness, I'm questioning his word, and I'm questioning his sovereignty. Often we are in trouble, when we're in trouble, we're downcast and all kinds of things come to our minds. Like, does God really exist? Does he really know about me? If he does, does he really, truly care about me? You know, is God paying attention to me? Or is he so busy with other stuff? My stuff is so small to him, he doesn't have time to mess with it. Well, Psalm 46 tells us what we can expect of God when we're having trouble. So it also tells us how we are to react to trouble. So let's read it together. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 11. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, Behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold or our refuge. Let's unpack that. Look at verse one. God is our refuge. God. God is our refuge. This word for God is the word Elohim. It is the name for God in Hebrew that represents the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So all three of them are involved with us. Elohim the word for the trying God. He is the one who is our refuge. He is a place of hope. The word refuge means shelter. It means a, a place of trust, a place of security. Sometimes it's translated stronghold, like it is here in this New American Standard Bible. Some, but a refuge, a shelter, a stronghold, they're all the same things. Now scripture doesn't literally say it here, but the truth is that God is our only shelter. He is our only stronghold. Um, Sometimes we want to trust in armies or trust in the government or trust in other people or trust in a position, trust in uh, education, trust in possessions. Those things don't last. And so what he's telling us here is that this God, the triune God, Elohim, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved with us, and that is a place where we can take refuge in Him, in Him. Any other place we try to hunker down is not safe. It might feel good for a moment. It might be safe for a period of time, but it's not the perfect sheltering place that we find in God. It says God is our refuge and our strength. Strength is security. It is might, it is power, it is boldness. All power belongs to God. And so this tells us simple sentence, a lot of stuff. God himself is our, personally, our refuge and our strength. He is our shelter and he is our security. Then it says he is very present, a very present help. He is now right here in the immediate present. He's not around here somewhere where we might find him in a minute. He is right here, right now, very present with us. And in us as believers, the Holy Spirit is where? He is present in us. So there's never a moment that we're without him. And what's he present for? This says he's present to help. He's present to help. This is divine help. It is true, working, effective, constant help. He is an exceedingly superlative help. Nobody else can help like he helps. So get it in your mind. God. The all-powerful, all-sufficient God, Elohim, is our shelter, he is our security, and he is always present to help us in ways we cannot even imagine. That's what it's telling us, just to start off with. Well, where does he help us? He is a very help where in trouble, in trouble. The word trouble means adversity, affliction, anguish, distress. It literally means, and I love this translation. If you dig through, you find this meaning of the word. It literally means a tight place. Have you ever been in a tight place? Uh, Sometimes here in the South, we talk about being between a rock and a hard place. That tight place, that place where you're bound, you, you can't do anything, you can't escape. So God is our shelter He is our place of hope and trust. He is our security, and he is right now immediately present to give effective, constant, exceedingly superlative help in adversity, in anguish, in distress, in any tight place. Are you in a tight place right now? Do you know some people who are in a tight place? That's just the first verse. Verse 2 begins with, therefore... That is an important word in Scripture. And whenever we see the word therefore, we want to ask the question, what is the therefore therefore? Why does it say, why does it say therefore? Well, the psalmist then gives us some pictures of ways trouble can come. And these are interesting. What does he say? Therefore, we will not fear, even though all of this trouble comes. And look at what kind of trouble he's talking about. He says, The earth could change, should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Well, that could be earthquakes. What causes the earth to change and mountains to slip into part of the sea? You know, I've never been in a major earthquake. I really don't wanna be in one. But would you not feel helpless? Where would you go? Where's there to go? I mean, if you stand out here on the ground to get away from the building, the ground could open up. Or if you're in any building, there's no place to hide so he says that's a kind of trouble uh, some people live today with fear and dread of mountains and cities crumbling into the ocean we see about them sometimes on the news and you know what that could be for us today face failing infrastructures it can happen big holes sinkholes we see them everywhere you know so you've got failing infrastructure it could be bombs Many kinds of things are out there that are possibilities to cause cities and mountains to fall into the sea. Verse 3 talks about waters roar and foam. What he says, he says, We will not fear though the earth should change. Mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. There is fury in hurricanes. Many of you maybe have experienced that. They're awful. Um, Mountains quake, this says, at its swelling tide. The whole earth shakes. Everything is shaking and swelling and is overwhelmed. Even then, he says, we will not fear. Then verses 4 through 7. Now the psalmist pictures this abundant, constant river in Jerusalem. Look what he says. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of Jacob is our stronghold or our refuge. So here he pictures this abundant, constant river for Jerusalem. Now the interesting thing is, Jerusalem doesn't have such a river. Jerusalem, as I've been told, only has a few small streams. But what he's doing here is anticipating the day when the prophecies will be fulfilled. The prophets foretold that there would be a mighty river that would flow from the temple itself. Well, what's he talking about? That's the fountain of living water. That is God himself, the living river. God, there is a river. God, who makes Glad, the city of God. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The city is glad because God is there. The city is glad because God is in her midst. There's peace there. The city is secure. God is in control. There is blessing there. There is provision there. So he says, just like shadows and darkness are dissipated at dawn, The bright rising of God is, God will help her when morning dawns. This bright rising of God is going to cause the darkness of adversity to be scattered. Peace. God's ultimate peace. The nations raged, it says. Man, we've read a little bit about that. We're seeing more and more of that, aren't we? It's not new. The nations raged. They made an uproar. God just spoke. And at his word, at his voice, this says the earth melts. Whew. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. He is Jehovah Sabaoth. There are all of these wonderful names of God. God used all kinds of names throughout the Old Testament to tell us about himself, to tell the Old Testament people about himself. And one of the names that he revealed himself as in the Old Testament was Jehovah, Jehovah Sabaoth. That is translated the Lord of hosts. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. You know who he is? He is the commander of countless armies that are both in heaven and on the earth. He is the commander in chief of more armies than we can imagine. That's the God who is with us. See verse 7 Jehovah's Sabbath oath is where? With us. With us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So this glorious God is with his people. The God of Jacob emphasizes the covenant of God and his grace and mercy. Remember the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and ultimately those who would be in this, be the seed of Abraham in the New Testament by faith. And so this God, is a personal God. So so look at him, think about him for a minute. In his graciousness and mercy, he is a refuge for his people. These covenants show his grace, his mercy, his invitation to come to him and find that protection, find that provision, find that love, find that mercy, find that grace. He is Lord of hosts and he is also Lord of an individual. A personal God one who wants a relationship with individuals. Verse eight, come, behold the works of the Lord. He has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease. So he is the sovereign one. He is the sovereign one in war. He is the sovereign one in desolation. He is the sovereign one in famine. HE IS THE SOVEREIGN ONE IN FLOODS, AND HE IS THE SOVEREIGN ONE IN PEACE, AND HE IS THE SOVEREIGN ONE IN PLENTY. THAT'S WHO HE IS, BEHOLD THE WORKS OF THE LORD. BUT AN INTERESTING THING HAPPENS IN VERSE 10. NOW WATCH WHAT HE SAYS, VERSE 8, COME, BEHOLD THE WORKS OF THE LORD who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. And then something interesting happens in verse 10. The writer has been describing the Lord, so we would call that, it's been written in third person. Somebody's telling about somebody else he And so all of a sudden here in verse 10, it moves to first person and God himself speaks. And look what he says. Be still and know that I am God. Now the idea here is not that one should just stop all that he's doing and stay in one place. This is not that kind of still. It literally says, Stop striving, cease striving, let go, let go. Give God your undivided attention. What does he say? Cease striving and know, know what? That I am God. Now, the first thing we've got to do is learn to listen. Learn to listen. True discernment comes to a heart that has ceased striving and started listening. There's some fabulous things all through Scripture about God moving in quietness, about His speaking in a still, small voice. And so true discernment. When I really begin to understand the Lord, when I receive what he's saying, when, he, when, I'm, when he's letting me discern what he's saying and what he's doing, it's most likely not going to be when I'm up running around talking, talking, being noisy. It's going to be when I have ceased striving and I'm willing to just be still. So what does he say? Stop striving and know. That word no means no. you know. You personally know. Know means to observe, to discover, to be sure, to understand, to see. So stop striving and observe, discover, be sure, understand, and see what? That I am God. That I'm God. Stop and think about that. And then he says, I will be exalted among the nations. We don't have to worry about whether or not God's going to win. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Oh, what a day. What a day. Then verse 11. The Lord of hosts, who's that? Jehovah Sabaoth. Um, that name is in some of the hymns that we sing. The Lord of hosts, he is the one who is with us. The one who is with us is the one who can call armies on the earth and in heaven to do whatever they need to do in our defense. Our job is to what? Stop striving. Stop striving. Let it go and focus on the Lord, the Lord of Hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. He is our stronghold. When trouble comes, God is a refuge for his people. He is continually available and absolutely thoroughly adequate. You might want to say that out loud wherever you are if you can. This God is continually available and thoroughly adequate, that God. And where does he say he is? With us. With us. He is our strength. He is our security. And he's the one who says, stop struggling. Stop worrying Release it to me. Let it go. Look at me. How am I going to do that? That's not an easy task, is it? We get things on our mind and we are all jumbled up. We're anxious. We're distracted. How, how am I going to cease striving? How am I going to do that? Well, he tells us how to do that. First of all, he says, look at the history of the nations. Read the Old Testament. Watch how God manipulated nations like men on a chessboard. He is in control, and he is doing his thing. God is in control. We can look at nations, look at the history of nations, see who he blessed, when he blessed, why he blessed, and what happened that caused him to take the blessing away. Those things were written for our instruction." And we need to learn from those things. So we can look at the history of nations. Then we can look outdoors. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. That word handiwork literally means finger work. Finger work. We've had some beautiful sunsets and sunrises here lately. This cold air and the clear sky has brought all kinds of colors in the clouds. And God says, look at that. Watch this. Focus. Give me credit. I'm doing every moment of this one second at a time. I'm here. I'm doing this. Psalm 8 is fascinating to me. It came to my mind when I was looking at this Psalm 1 and uh, Psalm 19. It says, when I gaze into the night sky and see the work of his fingers, the moon, the stars suspended in space, what is a man that thou art mindful of him? Why would he want to be with us when he's got and can do all of that? It's because of what Satan doesn't want you to believe. He loves you. And he's committed to being with you. So I can look at the nations. I can look at nature. I can look at the stars. I can look at the sky. I can look at trees. I can look and learn the lessons that are all around us from creations. But then I can also look at other people. Do you know some other people around that you can see where God has worked in their lives? Maybe he's made a provision for them. Maybe he's healed them maybe you've watched God answer prayer in the lives of other people. I see people today, I think of some young people that I worked with many years ago that today are in full-time ministry that in that day, that many years ago, they didn't even like to read and would never have told you that they would ever be in ministry. Look at people Observe what God is doing in people. And if you're one of those people, don't, don't be shy about telling your story. God's story in you. Don't be shy about that. It encourages other people and it gives us reasons for our faith to grow. And so how, how am I going to see striving? I'm going to recount all of the things that I see about God and that I know about God. I'm going to recall the things that God has done in my life in the past. The other times when he has sustained me, when he has come close to me, when he has made me aware of his presence, when he has given me incredible gifts that only he could give. So I'm going to remember those things and I'm going to reflect. I'm going to reflect on what God has already done. That's one of the greatest places to start building faith, is to look back and see what he's already done. And that gives us expectation of what he's going to do in the future. Be still is a popular verse. It's been set to music, but being still is not a popular thing in our culture. And we need to consider that. We need to reconsider that. So God uses and he loves quietness where we are not striving, where we are choosing to stop striving. And instead of doing that, focus on him. Focus on who he is and what he's willing to do. Um, The phrase just be still is interesting. It reminded me of the... End of the fourth chapter of Mark. You know the story where Jesus and his disciples were out on a boat and scripture says there was this fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that it was filling up with water and they thought it was going to sink and Jesus was asleep. What were the disciples doing? Striving. And so one of them, I don't know who, woke him up and said, "Hey. I don't know what he really you know, what what would you have said? How are you sleeping in all of this?" But what he said was what scripture records that he said was when they woke him up, "Don't you care that we are perishing?" So Jesus is aroused, arouses himself, and he spoke to the storm. You know what he said? be still. Be still. Is he speaking that message to us? Stop striving. Look at me, let it go. Interesting thing after that, is that here are the disciples and they're striving and they wake Jesus up and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? And so Jesus gets up and he looks at the storm and he says, be still. And it stops. The next verse is fascinating because that's where it says the disciples then became very much afraid. They thought they were afraid before, but now what has Jesus done? He's spoken to the storm, and they say, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey his voice? Wow. You'll remember that Jesus commended Mary because she sat quietly at his feet. Martha was busy. Taking time to look at him and to listen to him. You know, so many times God speaks in a still, small voice. I was thinking this morning about Elijah. I've been reading about Elijah. And, you know, Elijah is a fascinating character. And there he was, and, and God had put him in a situation where the wind came and earthquake came and the fire came. And Scripture says God wasn't in any of that. Certainly he was in control of it, but he wasn't in there. And after all of that was over, God spoke to Elijah in what a still, small If we're going to hear a still, small voice, we're gonna have to stop striving, give him our attention, focus on what he is saying to us. We're gonna have to clear our hearts of known sin and just sit before him in his gracious mercy and wait, we don't like that either, wait for him to speak. What's troubling you what kind of a tight place are you in? Realize that God is your own personal refuge. His authority is our safety. He is very much alive, and this Bible in this translation says, He is. Very present, very present. Love it when Jesus said, come unto me, come here. Who's he talking to? All ye who labor and are heavy laden. Just come here, bring it here. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. Rejoice in his promises. Trust that the Lord will do what he says he will do. I'm talking to myself here as well as you when I say stop stressing about the battle Stop stressing about the battle. We've got to set our eyes, our minds on him and trust him. He will give you the confidence of his presence in the midst of deepest trouble. Martin Luther said that Psalm 46 was his favorite song. He wrote a hymn about it. Fabulous hymn written a really long time ago. A mighty fortress is our God. Listen to what he says. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers No thanks to them abideth, the spirit and the gifts are ours, through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever, amen.